Let me ask you to turn to the book of Genesis. We come to the final kind of uh, protagonist, the final great story in this great book. In Genesis 37, we come to Joseph. We'll read the whole of the chapter. Genesis 37. We'll begin in verse 1. Let's hear what Moses, let's hear what the Father and the Son and the Spirit have to communicate to us. We're told that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peace to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Look, we were binding sheaves in the field. And look, my sheep arose and stood upright. And look, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I've dreamed another dream. Look, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, aren't your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So Israel said to Joseph, go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went out for his brothers and found them at Dothan. They sought him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what, became, what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There's no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to Judah. 
Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They sent the blood, the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son. Remember morning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph to, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. That's in the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask that he would bless all of us as we hear and respond to this word. Father, show us your goodness here. Restore to us our trust in your ways, their mystery, your paths, their depth, your thoughts, their greatness. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, who reveals your ways to us. Amen. I'm sure you've experienced somebody telling you when you've had a hard time, don't worry, brother. Often they say, brother, these people, I, find, I don't know why. Brother's fine, but if it was all, they always had a tendency to say, brother. All things work together for good. You're having a hard time, and they come by to your side. They say, hey, you know, don't worry about it, buddy. They say, brother or buddy, one of the two, usually. Don't worry about it. God has promised that all things will be good for you. Now, that's a Bible verse. That is definitely a Bible verse. But you've had somebody, if you're like me, tell you it in a flippant way, a lighthearted way. And it's really hard to actually hear the truth of that Bible verse when it's done in a flippant, lighthearted, easygoing way. When you're despondent, when you're in the dark places of life, it's hard to believe that everything you experience is orchestrated by God for your good. I mean, look, when, when things in your life, maybe for you this last week, was kind of fair to middling, average, you know, kind of five out of ten week for you. And so if somebody was to come to you and say, well, God, we're talking for good, you say, you know what? You're probably right. I can see that. We believe this statement about God when things are fair to Midland. <clears throat> but in the hard times, the tragedies, when your investment actually turns out to be an awful investment, when the terminal word comes from the doctor's mouth, the last thing you want to hear sometimes is the hard truth of God works all things for good. For those who love him. And it's even harder when you actually believe that God truly is sovereign over all things. When you believe the verse, if you, when, when you believe that God's sovereign over all things, that's a harder verse to actually get your hands around. Look, back in the day when you thought, maybe today some of y'all still think it, God's a gentleman. You know, he, he won't limit you. He won't limit your freedom in any way. He actually limits his own freedom to give you space to just kind of mess things up. He, 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 doesn't, you know, want to be all powerful sometimes. 
He lets you make bad choices. And he's like, whoops, sorry. When you thought that, or if you think that, it's actually a lot easier to believe. You know, God really just wants you to have a good life. He just couldn't help it. You made the, you made the bad choice. He would have stopped it, but he just loves your freedom too much. But of course, when you come to the idea that God actually uh, ordains all things and all actions of all his creatures, then suddenly you have to look at the sinister things of life, the dark side of the moon, and you have to wonder, is God playing games with us? Is God playing games with his little creatures? Does he get some sadistic joy out of making us squirm? It's tough to realize that God didn't just know bad things were going to happen to you, but in some sense concurred with your bad choices. And the other problem is he's so silent. I mean, in this chapter, we have the second straight atheist chapter in the Bible. The second straight chapter where God is silent, it seems. The second straight chapter, he's not mentioned here. He wasn't mentioned in the last chapter either. It's tough to realize this, that God is not often willing to tell you about your future in detail. And so some happy-go-lucky Christian comes to you, he's optimistic, and he says, don't worry, chin up, buck up. God works all things for good. And you're thinking, that might be true in magical fairy Bible land. But in the real world, it's not going to work that way. In the world of gray gloom, in the valley of darkness, it's not going to work that way. Can it be possible? We must ask this question. We do. I mean, you've, had, you've asked this question before, if you've been all thoughtful. And if you haven't, you will someday. Is it possible that devastating things are given for my good? That's the question. But the question we have to face if we're going to gain comfort from these words, because as we turn to the last character, the last main character, the last protagonist in this book of Genesis, the last sketch we get, this is the question of the whole story of Joseph. Personal evil, traumatic pain on the one hand, God's goodness over it all on the other hand. Now, if you've been in church for a while, if you have even had the little kids' Bibles, been in Sunday school, you know the story of Joseph in broad strokes. But we want to take a look at it in detail for the next few weeks and to ask ourselves, why does God put the long story of this is the longest of any of the patriarchs? This is the biggest story that any of them get, bigger than Abraham, Isaac, or, or Jacob. And we have to realize that the story of Joseph is not just a fun story about a guy. It's not a character sketch, simply. It is actually your story. It's God's people's story. It's God's works story. It's God's glory story. And the way we'll look at it this morning, I suppose, and the one, the way I guess the outline will go for us is to look at this little uh, fashion item. You may not think that God uh, can work in Milan on the runway, but he actually can. This chapter proves it, that God works through the height of fashion. Uh, we have this dream coat, this uh, most famous fact about Joseph. If you know, if you know anything, uh, mostly thanks to Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know about this coat. You know about the... Dream coat. We're not sure it was technicolor, actually. Even though the word here is coat of many colors, the Hebrew is a little tricky. Um, the NIV translation may actually be best here. A richly ornamented robe. It was a robe. It had long sleeves in those days. It was probably very nicely embroidered. Maybe had some, some jewels on it. I have no idea. Uh, but it almost certainly had big sleeves. And you can't wear big sleeves if you're out in the fields working. You can't wear poofy, puffed up, you know, outfits if you're out in the fields. 
The only other place this word is ever used in the Bible is 2 Samuel 13, 18, where it talks about princesses wearing royal robes. And so clearly this robe, this coat, whatever it is, is beautiful and it's central. If, you, if we look at the adventures of the coat, we're going to see three things. We're going to see three things about the opening word of Joseph and his story. It symbolizes his initial life. It symbolizes the plan of God. Let's think first here. Again, you can check your outline. We'll look first at the coat given. The coat given. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. We're told that Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. He made him a robe of many colors. Joseph was a child of the favorite wife. Jacob had a favorite wife, Rachel. And he gives him a robe of many colors. And now, before we get into any of this, let me just make a, an opening point. Uh, this chapter is not about how to be a good parent or a bad parent. This chapter is not about playing favorites and why it's good or bad to do so. The Bible does not praise Jacob for having a favorite. The Bible does not condemn Jacob for having favorites. There are plenty of other Bible texts that tell us about parenting. The description of one family here is not to be twisted to support your preferred take on how you should parent your kids. Rather, in God's providence, what happens? Jacob has a favorite son. He makes a special visual aid to show his favor. We see the apple has not fallen far from the tree, that Jacob is being like his parents. Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob has, in turn, a favorite. He loves Rachel's first son. And this shows that Joseph isn't just a favorite, but crucially, in what follows, this indicates that, that Joseph actually has the inheritance. He has been given, bestowed upon him, not just favoritism, but money, land, stuff. When Jacob dies, Joseph will get the firstborn share, even though he's not the firstborn in terms of time. In fact, we read in, a, in John 4, verse 5, in a very like side note, when Christ meets the woman at the well, we get a note that the well they meet at is near the land Jacob gave to Joseph. It's interesting that the, that's the only plot of land Jacob had in the promised land, and he gives it to Joseph. It's a sign of his favor, a sign of his love. But what do we see here? We see the son. We see Joseph. What's he doing? Verse 2. He's bringing a bad report. He's bringing a bad report on his other brothers. Now, a lot of folks run wild with this statement. Joseph must be a snitch. He must be a rat. He must be a tattletale, and we know that tattletales are not good. But there's nothing in the text that indicates Joseph is wrong for telling his dad about his brothers. In fact, of course, what happens later on, Jacob sends him out again to see his brothers. And then he gives Joseph this robe. What's the response? He makes him this robe. He makes him the, the heir Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. They could not even say shalom. In Jewish society, it's customary to say peace when you see somebody. Even in, in the Middle East, if you're Muslim, you say, Allah get, grant you peace. You know, it, it, It's a common Middle Eastern thing to say. They could not speak peace. They don't like him. They despise him. They see him. They hate him. And then we have these dreams. He has the coat, and then he has dreams. Some people, like me, don't recall their dreams. Other people, like my wife, have vivid dreams. They tell me about their vivid dreams. 
Joseph was that kind of person. He had dreams. He had dreams. He remembered them. He gets his brothers together. He, he tells them a dream. Verse 6, he says, look, uh, we were all getting sheaves in the field, and the, the sheaf that I got, the, the grain that I got, it stood up, and all of y'all's sheaves, they bowed down. And to nobody's surprise, verse 8 says, what's their response? They hated him all the more. They hated him all the more. We have an unhealthy family here, but the key theme is not really the dream. The key theme is the hatred of the brothers. Four times I've mentioned they hate Joseph. They hate Joseph. They hate Joseph because he says these dreams. He has two dreams. He has the sheaf dream, and then beginning in verse 9, he has the moon and stars dream. He has the cosmos dream. He has the dream of all the stars, 11 of them, and the sun, the moon, bowing down. The sun and the moon are presenting clearly Jacob and Jacob's wives, we'll find that Jacob, verse 10, says, Hold on now, are your mother and your brothers going to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And then they say, of course, that his brothers are jealous. Why does Joseph have two dreams? It's interesting, just a side note, uh, we'll see two dreams happen a lot. Dreams come in pairs in the story of Joseph. He has two dreams, Pharaoh has two dreams, the baker, the cupbearer in prison, they have two dreams. We get dream pairs, dream couples. Why do we get dream pairs? It's a confirmation of the message. God speaks through dreams. You know, Abraham didn't have a Gideon Bible in his hotel room. He didn't have a Bible he could just pick up and read. In those days, God spoke through dreams in part. So he communicates and he reaffirms the message he's sending. He reinforces the message. It's like when you read and you underline a key word or a key passage, you want to remember it. The second dream corroborates the first. And so what is this? The dreams, were they saying? Jacob makes Joseph the favorite. God says, you're right, Jacob. God affirms and confirms that Joseph is the correct heir. He is the correct ruler. It is really a dream coat. God is saying, this is my aim. This is my goal. This is my design. So far from being a story of a daddy's pet or a spoiled brat, it is a saga of a future ruler. From boyhood, Joseph is marked out with a unique destiny. So the coat's been given, but second we see here the coat's taken. The giving of the coat made the brothers jealous. Verse 11, they don't just hate him, but the hatred moves to envy and jealousy. These are hard-bitten guys. These are evil people. These are not nice brothers. The coat, every day, they would see it. And they'd be out working, and Joseph would be out prancing around in his cool coat, he had his nice, uh, nice clothes on, and they would say, ugh, I just hate that guy. What are you doing this for? Their blood pressure kept rising. Now, I suppose we have to ask, why does Joseph tell them about his dreams? He has these dreams. They're pretty clearly about him ruling over his brothers. Why does he tell them to him? Is he arrogant? Is he boastful? Is he foolish? Is he trying to say, ha ha, look at me? I don't think so. This is not Dr. Phil. You know, this is not the episode of some sibling drama you see on the, uh, the cable television. Um, at worst, Joseph has low emotional IQ. He has low self-awareness. Because think about it. What's fascinating here is that everybody believes his dreams. Look, boys and girls, you know this. When your brother tells you or your sister tells you, hey, I had a crazy dream last night. I was riding the clouds. 
you say, okay, that's a little weird. You don't believe them. You don't believe it actually means anything. You don't say, oh, that must mean you're going to, you know, rule over me something. No, you, you don't do that. But they did. What's weird, the, the weird thing about this it's not that they're jealous of him. I mean, that's understandable. He has a cool coat. The weird thing is they believe the dreams. Everybody understands what they mean, and they believe them. They didn't hate Joseph. They hated his position. They hated the favor given to him. The brothers take the dream seriously, and the dreams say, you're not in charge, boys. And that's the real core of the issue. They hate anybody having authority over them. They hate anybody, and not just anybody. They understand, his, Jacob understands very clearly, God is communicating through dreams. He is saying, you will be over your dad. You will be over your brothers, even though you're not the firstborn. I mean, isn't this a sin of our day? We, we despise people over us in authority. And it's not just people, but really what's behind this is the brothers hate God. The brothers hate whom God has put over them. Come, come uh, later this week, we're going to have a couple of new politicians maybe in Georgia. Someone that God puts over you. Are you going to hate them? Are you going to be jealous of them? Are you going to resent that? Very common temptations. Not just common in the political arena, but common in our every, every aspect of our lives. We don't like God putting his plan into action when we're not on top, when we're not in control, when we're not successful. They are rebelling. These brothers are not attacking Joseph simply. They are rebelling against God. This is why, friends, when they, uh, when they see Joseph, they say in verse 19, they conspire to kill him. They say... Here comes this dreamer. Let's kill him. We will see what will become of his dreams. You see, the issue the issue they have is that the dreams set Joseph up. God is saying, Joseph's going to be my man, my leader, my God, my, my, my ruler. That's why they want to kill him. I mean, think about it. Isn't it a stretch for these brothers to move from jealousy to murder, you don't want to kill the annoying little brother who keeps telling you his dreams that are weird. You just don't want to kill him. You don't really want to kill somebody if your, your parents give them the nice toy and you don't have the nice toy. You're jealous, of course. Yes, you, you could, there's, there's jealousy. But it's a huge step. It's a stretch to move for jealousy to murder. Why do they do it? Why do they do it? It's not because they believe that snitches get stitches. It's because they believe that God is revealing his will to this family. He's revealing his future, and they don't want to serve Joseph. They don't want to serve God. They are fighting God at every step. That's why they're saying, look, if we get rid of this guy, God can't stop us. That's what they're doing, in effect. If we get rid of this guy, God can do nothing. They dehumanize him. They call him a dreamer. They don't, they don't even give his name. They plot to kill him. And they plot this cruel action that is quite literally diabolical. It is Satan-inspired. They want to kill their younger brother coming to serve them at their father's command. You see this, you know the story. You, you read it here. What happens? That They want to throw him into a well. 
That's what Reuben says. Verse 22. He says, let's just throw him in here. Let's not kill him. Let's save his life. Reuben, of course, wants to come back and kind of get back into his dad's good graces. They take the decision. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. They took him. They threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. And then verse 25, one of the worst verses in the whole, the whole story, I think. Verse 25, then they sat down to eat. Then they sat down to eat. One commentator says, how could they say grace after what they had just done? Right? I sat down to eat after all this. So that's perhaps the most sickening of the whole story. They're able just to say, hey, let's, let's grab a Big Mac. Let's, let's, let's have some meal. Let's chow down. And they take the rope. The coat given, the coat taken, finally the coat torn, the coat destroyed. Read beginning in verse 29 that uh, Joseph's not in the pit. He's not in the pit. Reuben can't rescue him because Judah has already intervened. Verse 26 says, look, he wants money. Judah needs the money. Who knows why? He sees the profit possible. Don't kill him. We can't get any money out of this. Here's my plan. Let's sell him into slavery. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him. You can just sense this, verse 27. Don't touch him. He's our brother. As if that had stopped him before. It's a silly, it's a, it's a, a, a horrible argument. But of course, it works. Verse 28, they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Joseph is taken to Egypt. And what happens to this coat, this coat right here, this, this coat that's been torn? What happens to it? Well, they have to make up some evidence, like some dirty cops. They have to you know, go to the crime scene. They have to make it look like he got killed by an animal. They kill a goat. They slaughter a goat. They dip the robe in the blood. They send the robe, verse 32, and they say to their dad, Dad, tell us, is it your son or not? Is it your son or not? He says, it is my son's robe. An animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. The coat given in love, taken in violence, destroyed in blood and ruin. So what's the point of all this? I mean, it's a story. You know the story. It's a story. It's a soap opera. It's as good as any you know thing you'll see on TV. It's a dysfunctional family. It's far more than a soap opera, of course. On the one hand, this is the beginning that God will work. God will use these wicked brothers as the agents of transformation. God will use Joseph to transform these brothers from these kind of wicked, cruel, self-centered men into repentant hearts. But more than that, more than that, the clear purpose of this text is to show us our Savior, Jesus Christ. Show us Jesus Christ. We know that because we have actually inspired commentary on this story. It's always safe when you're preaching to go to what the Bible says about the story. We have this in Acts 7. Stephen, recall that in the book of Acts, Stephen is put on trial before the high priest of Sanhedrin. He makes his defense. One of his great themes is that God's people have always rejected their Savior's. Just like they reject Jesus. 
In Acts 7, verse 9, he says this, because the fathers, our fathers were jealous of Joseph, they sold him into slavery in Egypt. They rejected the deliverer. Do you see how Stephen preaches Jesus Christ? How the New Testament preaches Jesus Christ? When he wants to speak about Jesus, he talks about Joseph. He preaches Joseph that he might preach Jesus Christ. And I hope you see, friends, the presence of Christ. This is a godless chapter in one sense, and yet it's not at all a godless chapter. It's chock full of our beloved Lord. He was the one who was marked out for honor above any of his brothers. He was the beloved son. He was likewise hated by his brothers. He came to his own, John says. In his prologue, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus is attacked. Jesus is stripped. Jesus has his robe torn away from his body. He was hated by his brothers. He was mocked. He was sold to strangers. He was bloodied. He died. Do not see in this the suffering servant. And therefore, the question that comes to all of us must be this. How are you treating him? How are you treating the brother that God sends to you in his love? How are you treating Jesus Christ? Are you receiving him or are you selling him? Are you selling him for profit? Are there things in your life that you count more precious than Jesus Christ? Are you jealous because other Christians get preeminence over you? Other people get things, get signs of God's favor more than you. Or are you simply just like Judah wanting to make a buck off of Jesus, wanting to get comfy and profit to have friends and work and pastimes that are more important to you in Jesus Christ? These brothers had the Savior in their hands and they sold him away. You have the Savior given to you every week. You have his gospel put before you on advertisement every day. You have his word right here. Are you selling him or are you receiving him? And yet, if you are receiving him, if you are one who loves the Savior, do you see that like Joseph, you are chosen by God? That like him, you are loved in the beloved son. That like him, you have the best fashion out there. You have the robe, not a, not a technicolor robe. You have the height of fashion in the beauty of Christ in his righteousness, in the beauty of his robe, in his 3D technicolor obedience, full of all the best fashion features they never go out. you understand that jesus christ never goes out of style fashions will come and go i'm told that uh apparently for some reason you know the the long pants the bell bottoms the whatever the the parachute pants are back in i don't know you tell me if i'm wrong or not but but fashion comes in and out of style comes in and out of style jesus christ never goes out of style to be a man of humility to be a woman like Jesus Christ, never goes out of fashion. That's why his clothes, his robe, his royal robe never is ugly. It's always beautiful. It's always attractive. Do you see that you have been clothed with the robe of Jesus Christ, the royal robe? And the other thing is it's a white robe. It's a pure robe. That's a picture we get in Scripture all over the place, from Zechariah to Revelation the saints are clothed in white. You don't feel like you're clothed in white. You feel like you're clothed in blood. You feel like your clothes are all dirty. You feel like your righteousness is all mucky, and it is. But you were given Christ. You were given his white obedience, his perfect beauty. 
And yet, people look at that and what do they say? They say, you Christians act pretty uppity, don't you? You see, like Joseph, if you're a Christian, you say, I'm a child of God, and you, you revel in what God gives to you. Some people can get jealous of that. Calvin makes this point. Let us learn not to be grieved if at any time the shining of God's grace on us should cause us to be envied. You ever had that happen to you? Where you are overjoyed in Jesus Christ and people say, stop being so joyful. You're ruining things for the rest of us. You ever had that work where your integrity means that other people get angry at you because you're not willing to you know, sink down to their depths? You're not willing to play the gossip game? And people are like, no, no, no. We want to talk bad about others. You say, no, I reject that. They envy you for it. They hate you for it. Just like Joseph. You see, friends, the reality is that you will go down like Joseph to the pit. You may even see him be forgotten. A hundred years from now, I don't think anybody in this room, myself definitely included, will be remembered that much. And you will be mocked and they will say, what will come of your dreams of eternal life? What will come of your dreams of joy? What will come of your dreams of heaven? <laughs> you naive Christian, you silly, silly person. But for Joseph, this was not the case. He had a beautiful future. And it was not the case for our Savior. He was raised from the dead. Joseph only looked like he would die in the pit. Jesus really died. And he ascended to his father's right hand. And yet we have to come back to the question we began with. Is God actually here? Because the story never mentions him. Can God be even in the evil actions of these brothers? We've talked about how it, 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 we see it as a picture of Christ. But what about the evil people? What about the evil actions of the brothers? Can he be involved in the evil of kidnapping and plotting murder? I mean, isn't that what you feel when evil touches you? Isn't that what you feel when, when the actions of others or your own actions, your own evil actions, when God feels distant, when you're trapped? When God does not tell you what's on his mind. Friends, we see <clears throat> human evil here. But evil that will actually serve God's plan. So much so that Joseph can say later on, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Where is God in your evil circumstances, your hard lives? You don't know your, part of the issue is you don't know your story. You don't know your middle, the present, but you know the future. Scripture tells us that God does indeed promise a good ending. He does indeed work all things for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And that's why the story is here, friends. The story is not here to solve the question of evil, but it is to show us that even evil is used to bring about his good plans. The cross of Calvary answers this question we pose. It answers the great dilemma. God is not a random being out to get you. Rather, he works to bring about this great good. The cross is the most evil, horrific tragedy that has ever occurred. An innocent man brutalized, betrayed, killed by evil actors, but through it, enemies are turned into friends. And so the question for us is, you may be in a chapter of your life that doesn't make sense. You may be in a chapter of your life where everything's pressing on you and you have no idea what God is doing. And you are tempted to disbelieve when the, the happy-go-lucky, the Pollyanna Christian comes to you and says, oh, duh, buck up, God's going to work it for good. The cross is the only place you can go to 
to say, God isn't tricking me. It may not feel like it. It may not look like it. But God is not playing with you like a cat plays with a mouse. He would not have crucified his beloved son to mistreat you. His goal for you is good. So can you believe him? Do you believe him? Will you believe him? This is your story. You know the end of it. You know the last chapter. The son at the father's right hand for you. Let's pray. Oh, glorious God, we thank you that you, though you seem absent so many times, though you seem silent, though uh, it feels like the pressures of this age are just too much. Our ears are popping. We can't take it anymore. They ask that you would show us in this story of Joseph, the story of our Savior, and the story of your goodness to us, despite appearances. I pray, Lord, that you would work the evil, the evil in our hearts even, the evil in our lives for good. I pray this as we entrust ourselves to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our older brother, your beloved son. Amen.